heart disease is the number one killer of women. It actually kills more women than all of the cancers combined. And I'm not saying this to pull breast cancer and raise awareness of those things, but when you're looking at an opponent, you need to size them up and not you know, underestimate them. Your biggest health threat, whether you're a man or a woman, is cardiovascular disease. And so it is important to be informed so you are best able to help reduce your risk. Welcome to the Nonprofit Podcast Network. Our purpose and passion is to highlight a nonprofit organization in each episode, giving that organization an opportunity to tell their story in their words to better inform and educate the respective communities they serve, as well as provide one more tool for them to share their message to constituents and donors. Hi, I'm Jeff Holden, Principal of Multipoint Content Strategies and Hear Me Now Studio. We provide this forum pro bono to help build stronger communities through shared voices and to both encourage and support the growth of local nonprofit organizations through podcasting. Heart disease kills more Americans than any other disease, period. It's not gender specific, it's not geographically bound, and it affects every ethnicity, some more than others. It can be genetic, congenital, or self-induced. In the case of women, Death from heart disease is greater than all the cancers combined. For our first episode in the month of February, I couldn't think of a way to kick off American Heart Month better than by speaking with a representative of the Sacramento chapter of the American Heart Association. My guest, Dr. Ritu Sharma, is a cardiologist for Sutter Health in Roseville, California. She serves as American Heart Association Sacramento board member is a local ambassador for the American Heart Association's Go Red for Women movement and is passionate about raising awareness about women's health. Her practice envelops a wide array of heart conditions and treatment from arrhythmias and heart disease to the respective diagnostics and medical treatments for those conditions and symptoms related to the disease. She is also fluent in both English and Hindi. Dr. Sharma, welcome to the program. I am so excited to be able to speak with you as we kick off American Heart Month. Thank you for having me. You know, before we get into any specifics, could you share with us what it was that brought you to your involvement with the American Heart Association here in Sacramento? I think it was just a natural progression of what I do. I'm a practicing cardiologist, and so I deal with heart disease head on. I see how it affects my patients, and I think whatever I can do in my capacity to help eliminate heart disease, this was just kind of natural progression of that. We have heart disease now as the number one cause of death in the country. And I would imagine that that same statistic is mirrored here in Sacramento, where it's the number one cause of death. What are the conditions that actually get listed under what we call heart disease? So we call it cardiovascular disease. So cardio meaning the heart. So blocked arteries, things that cause heart attacks. And then problems with the arteries, the vascular part of the cardiovascular is arteries in the brain that would cause a stroke, arteries in the periphery, which we call PAD, and then arteries, the main artery, the aorta, so that's the aortopathy. Atherosclerosis is a common diagnosis that's hardening of the arteries? Basically, it's hardening of the arteries. Basically, the lumen is compromised because of gunky stuff that starts clogging it. That's that process is called atherosclerosis. Okay. 
could you explain a little bit about what what that clogging is? Because I've heard you have narrowing of the arteries, or you have hardening of the arteries, or you have clogged arteries with plaque. And I suspect all three are equally disarming. They're not good to have. What's the difference between, is there a difference between the three? It is basically a continuum of that atherosclerotic process where, you know, fatty plaques accumulate, calcium accumulates, inflammatory cells accumulate. And it basically, all of that just kind of over time keeps narrowing the lumen. And it depends on if it's accumulating on the periphery, in the center, and that kind of helps guide how fast that progression is. And so it is the same idea. It's just different types of gunk, as you call it, that just starts (laughs) compromising our lumen and impairs blood and nutrients and mainly oxygen from getting to vital organs. And that culminates into a heart attack if it's the heart, a stroke if it's the brain. Okay. Speaking of stroke, which is a great transition to the next question, it's another condition that we see on the American Heart Association website that's the fifth-ranked cause of death in the country. I, I mean, I just didn't see that as being so highly ranked. As the number one and number five causes of death are both heart disease and stroke directly related to our hearts, or are there other elements that you know play in the disease? So atherosclerotic process is involved in both the heart attack and the stroke. So the, the things that lead risk factors wise to both are the same, you know, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, smoking, diabetes, life of inactivity or sedentary lifestyle, poor diets, alcohol use, all of those same kind of checklist is the same. It's the same vascular tree, whether it be in your brain, whether it be in your heart or it be any of the other vessels. You can't generally have plaque isolated to your leg. If you have plaque in your heart, it's going to be in your leg. It's going to be in the arteries of the brain. So that's good because you treat everything in a similar fashion. So any kind of plaque buildup is accelerated with those risk factors and it's blunted by treating those risk factors or modifying those risk factors. I think the the difference in terms of stroke is the symptoms are different than a heart attack symptom generally. And with both heart attack and stroke, time is of the essence, meaning from when you get those symptoms to when you have relief, meaning that blockage or obstruction is opened, it's critical because either heart, heart cells die, muscle cells die, or brain cells die, but both can cause debility and death. So time is of the essence. I keep saying that because if you have symptoms, you need to avail of your medical system. It's not okay to say, well, I couldn't see it through my eye, but I waited the next day, called my doctor. Because again, for strokes, generally there's a three, four hour window where they can actually do life-saving, you know, clot busting medications to open up, restore blood flow, restore oxygen, keep that brain cell from, you know, going. Hmm. So going back, we talked about symptoms being a little different. So for stroke, because people need to know what are these red flag symptoms. So numbness or weakness in the face, changes in vision in one eye or both eye, confusion, balance or gait problems, not being able to speak well, like you have what you want to say, but it's not coming out, a slurring of speech, sometimes a severe headache that comes without any context. These are all signs or arm, leg weakness or altered sensation. 
These are kind of the five major signs that you might be having to stroke. And it's very, very important to just not waste time. 911, get to the nearest ER and they can do imaging to say, what, corroborate whether you are having a stroke. And well, again, there is a window of intervention that is lost the next day where they can actually deploy measures to restore blood flow and so that you have a complete neurological recovery. And there's an acronym, FAST, yeah, FD? Actually, well, FAST has changed. It's been updated. FAST oh, no. has the face, <laughs> the arm, the, the S is speech, and then T being time is of the essence, but they've made it be FAST so that you have your eye stuff and you have your balance. That's what we had talked about before. So be fast actually encompasses all of all of those things. So even for healthcare, we have that in the hospital so that even healthcare workers know what to look for so that, again, we expedite therapy whenever we can. Can we take a, just a little step back? That's the stroke side of it. What about heart attack symptoms? What should we be looking for when we may be experiencing a heart attack? So it would be convenient for it to be kind of just a checklist. What I've found in my practice is there is nuance. It's not necessarily black or white, but kind of your stereotypical symptoms are discomfort. We say chest pain, but I say discomfort and altered feeling in this area of your chest. You know, stereotypically, they say it should be your substernal area that you feel like an elephant on your chest, maybe going into your arm. But I found that that stereotype does not fit all patients. And I don't want patients to say, oh, I'm not having exactly that, so I'm not going to call the doctor. And often doctors or the healthcare first liners, your ER, your primary care, who hears the story, I don't want them also to dismiss saying, well, that's not the stereotypical symptom, so I'm going to dismiss it. What I found is female patients, especially elderly patients and diabetics, may not have that stereotypical elephant on my chest going into my arm. They may have pain or discomfort elsewhere. They may have it in their arms, in their neck, their abdomen, their jaw, their back. They may not have pain at all. They may have nausea, sweating, dizzy, lightheadedness, or they may just feel like extremely tired. And so it's hard to put it all and say, if you have this, then this. I usually tell my patients, you know yourself better than anybody else. If you feel something is not right, just get help. At worst, you know, you spent four hours in the ER, but you do not want to miss a heart attack. As we talked about stroke, there are certain types of heart attacks where muscle is dying, meaning that if you wake up at three in the morning with this, whatever you think may be a heart attack, you'll wait till the next morning. There are interventional cardiologists on call 24-7 that will come at three in the morning because they know if they delay for hours, that heart muscle is not going to come back. So it is very important when you have symptoms, don't play doctor and, and your doctor can't play doctor. Don't call your doctor because nobody knows if it's the real thing unless they do the test. And so go to your nearest ER. And if that means calling 911, that's fine. I don't want you to drive yourself. So when you call 911, you actually have a mobile unit that comes. They will start the evaluation right when they get to your door. So the time again is saved. So they will know, they will relay messages to the ER so they're prepared. And I'm going to add a plug for the website. The American Heart Association website is phenomenal. If you are 
uncertain, even though I think in our heart of hearts, no pun intended, we know something's wrong. Exactly. Go to the website and look at the conditions and symptoms and say, that's me. And full transparency, I have a congenital heart defect. I had a heart attack, ended up in your hospital. But it took me five times of the experience to get there. And so many of us live in the state of denial because well, I'm in good shape. It can't happen to me. I don't eat or drink or do all those things that those other people do that cause heart attacks. Forget the denial. You, you experience a symptom, get to the hospital, be checked. Absolutely. And I think that sense of denial, I think it's with everybody. Like when you hear, oh, this celebrity had a heart attack, it scares you. And then it's like, oh, it's just a celebrity. Or your brother-in-law had a heart attack. It's like, that was just bad luck. We don't look <laughs> inwards and say, what am I doing to mitigate my risk? Do I know what my risk factors are? And yes, knowledge is very empowering, but I want patients and patient, everybody's a patient. I want people to get on that website right now, not when they're having symptoms. And so they can do a checklist, say, is this real or not? I want you to inform yourself, arm yourself with that knowledge right now so you have better discernment. But honestly, I, I don't want you to play doctor. I want you to, if there's something that doesn't feel right, please get help. Please get evaluated and be an advocate for yourself. As I see, even the healthcare system has a lot to learn. Like, for example, you know, this is Go Red Month, right? Women and heart disease. That de gender disparity still exists and it's societal. It's not just the patient or the person that goes for help. It's the healthcare team. We have been trained that this is only what a heart attack looks like. It has to fit this mold. Otherwise, it's not. And we've been told that, you know, women don't have heart disease. And we do. We have mm -hmm. heart disease. Heart disease is the number one killer of women. It actually kills more women than all of the cancers combined. And I'm not saying this to pull pull breast cancer and raise awareness of those things. But when you're looking at an opponent, you need to size them up and not, you know, underestimate them. Your biggest health threat, whether you're a man or a woman, is cardiovascular disease. And so it is important to be informed so you are best able to help reduce your risk. Save your own life. Save the lives of the people you know because you're informed. That brings up two things. The first one is that's an astounding fact that all cancers combined, more women are dying from heart disease than all cancers combined. Well, we don't hear enough about that. We don't. And I don't know why that is. I don't have a good answer for you. I mean, I think this whole Go Red campaign was started because of this gender disparity. We still have a long way to go, though. It, again, the data suggests that less than half of women recognize heart disease to be their greatest health risk. So despite all of the media and all of this, it's just not permeating to the masses. They don't see it. In terms of the conditions themselves, you know, all these, these heart conditions we're speaking about, it doesn't seem like it's getting better. It actually seems like it's getting worse, which is making me crazy because we have so much information, so much data, so much opportunity to improve, so much medication. What is it you think that's causing the disease to become more prolific as opposed to minimized? This is actually a very good point. So people need to know that more than 80% of cardiovascular events are actually preventable. But going to your point, we're still having more. And I think part of the reason is our lifestyle. I think the obesity epidemic, our BMIs are more than they've ever been probably in the history of 
humankind. I think we have lost that relationship with food. You know, our forefathers or our ancient man used to eat food for fuel. We eat it, we burn it. We needed it just so that we could survive, we could hunt, we could gather, we could do whatever. Now we have food as entertainment, as, you know, we're depressed, we're stressed out. It's dinner time, even though I had a meal half an hour ago, but it's dinner time, so I must eat. So there are many reasons we eat. And then the things that we eat, it's not the diet of our, you know, old people. Like we got food from the earth. Now we get processed food. This is not food from the earth anymore. And it is not going to behave in our bodies like food from the earth will. So processed food is one of strongly linked to a lot of diseases, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, a lot of the inflammatory autoimmune diseases. You know, so our diet has kind of strayed off from what it should be. We're eating more processed meat. We're eating fried foods. I don't think they had those things, you know, back in the day. So they ate nuts, berries. These are the things that we say are good for us. Our body knows how to process, maximize the fuel out of them. These new things our body hasn't learned. And so, you know, we, we just don't do well and we become obese and they actually increase the type of obesity. We often have more central obesity, which has been linked to heart disease, to diabetes and metabolic syndrome. And when obesity comes, some of the top risk factors for heart, heart attacks and strokes, which are diabetes, high blood pressure, sleep apnea, these are all related to your weight. You're more likely to get these. Like I have patients that have diabetes, they lose weight, or patients that have sleep apnea that lose weight. They're off their meds. They're, they don't have to wear their CPAP anymore. So weight is very critical to a lot of the risk factors that we deal with. You mentioned gender and women are impacted differently than men, or at least less aware, I should say. Would it be correct or incorrect to say that a woman might be more likely to say something about a situation that doesn't feel well versus a guy who's going to go, mm, I'm not going to say anything. I don't want anybody to know. Or is that not true? So I think from my standpoint, this is what I found. You may be right that women are more expressive, but at the same time, I find that women are socialized not to speak up for themselves. I think women are great advocates for their elderly parents, their neighbors, their family members. I don't think they're very good advocates for themselves. So even though they may feel odd, you're not going to tell anybody. They don't want to waste other people's time. They don't want to go to the ER and waste the time of the ER staff. I think that inertia exists only for themselves because I think they are true champions for their family, for their friends. They will take their mother-in-law to the ER and say, I don't care. You're going to get help. If they feel something, they will feel it. But they will not vocalize it because they want, it's this politeness that I don't want to waste and bother anybody. And I think that's years of socialization. And I don't, I, I don't know how to undo that, but I think it's time that we start, you know, advocating for those women that we love and make them a priority and let them enable them and empower them to make themselves a priority. That's a perfect segue to the Go Red movement that is happening now. It's, it starts for yeah. American Heart Month. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is and your involvement with it? So the Go Red campaign has basically been, I think the AHA maybe 20 years ago wanted to put this up there, this gender disparity that exists and they wanted to empower women, want to realize that heart disease was, the, was their biggest risk and their biggest killer. 
but also empower them with knowledge so that we know what to do. So we talked about symptoms. We know how to figure out what our risk factors are, how to work with our doctors, lifestyle-wise, medications and other therapy-wise to help mitigate those risk factors, but also draw attention to the fact that women are not getting equitable treatment. As I talked about a societal thing at the level of the patient, but at the level of the healthcare system, at the level of things like research. You know, women, there is so much cardiovascular research that goes on all the time, but research on women, on minorities, it's not as equitable. And we can't extrapolate that a woman is a modified man and what applies to a man necessarily applies to a woman in terms of diagnosis, in terms of evaluation, in terms of even treatment. And so women are a different entity and we need research to figure out how best to support them, how best to get them, you know, better, faster, and to recognize that they will not have that stereotypical manifestation. You know, I have, I've st have heard stories from patients where they've gone to the ER and they were dismissed because the doctor said, oh, you just have heartburn or you just have, you know, it's your anxiety that's causing these symptoms. And they were sent home without an evaluation. And again, it's because the mindset is women don't have heart disease, but they do. And a lot of their heart disease is also different than men. And so that awareness has to be there in the healthcare system. That awareness has to be, I mean, that, that has to be researched more thoroughly. So we have a better kind of a fit for them, a better solution for them. For example, a lot of women issues, you know, are related to, I think, I wouldn't say women issues. I think heart disease in general, we are more, I think, vocal about the role of stress, anxiety, depression in terms of heart disease. It was not talked about very frequently, but I think now people are talking about stress and emotional well-being and how that pertains to cardiac health, but also other illnesses, actually. But there are recognized entities that women are more likely to suffer certain types of heart attacks. There are things like stress-induced cardiomyopathy, where a woman actually from an emotional trigger sometimes even can develop a heart attack. Sometimes it's reversible and they can't, when they, when they look for blockage, they can't find anything. So it's like, oh, maybe there was nothing there, but now we're recognizing there is an entity where stress can cause something where blood is not getting to the heart and manifests like a heart attack. And this is predominantly in women, probably 70, 80% more common. There's an entity called spontaneous coronary artery dissection which is seen, again, predominantly in women. And we still don't know what causes it. And that's the thing is we've delineated a lot of things. We know a lot about cardiac issues. But there are these things that women get much more that haven't been evaluated. We don't, we, we call it idiopathic. We'll say, well, you know, sometimes it's because of stress that women, and these are young women, 30 and 40 year olds, they get to get, oh, maybe it's hormone and the changes, fluctuations, you know, women and postpartum can get this more often. So they're hypothesizing different things, but we don't have an answer. So I think this whole month is about raising awareness that women are not modified men and we are a different entity that have to be evaluated as such rather than say, oh, well, this medicine works for men. It's going to work with men or work for women. And I find women patients don't necessarily deal as well with certain medications that men do or are unwilling. So we are a different, different entity in terms of our likes and dislikes as well. For example, there are cholesterol meds that men will take, but women often may have more side effects. And I have to work with my female patients and tell them, okay, you don't like this one. We're going to try this. 
But the, the sense would be to just give up and say, oh, they don't want to take it. So you know what? It's fine. But I will persevere because I see that women patients don't tolerate it. And it's not like they talked and said, oh, don't take this med. Oh, you don't take this med. There is a reason they must somehow metabolize it differently, or there's something innately in it that somehow doesn't agree with them. And so I will persevere and I'll try different meds till I get it. But it might be the fourth time or the fifth time, but I know that that med will help help a woman just as well as it will help a man. And so these nuances need to be taken into account because it helps us get them better faster. The most critical thing is when we recognize symptoms and we go to our healthcare team and say, I think this is going on, we need to make sure that evaluation happens equally with women as with men, because if, it, if they're sent home or they're diagnosed later, their treatment is delayed and their outcome is never going to be the same. So it just becomes critical. It's many steps along this process where societally, from the patient level to the healthcare worker level, we have to be much more aware of the nuances a woman patient will have. I can see I touched a nerve. <laughs> and I appreciate the passion for it because it's so significant. And even you know, my condition, same deal. You know, I do a podcast for this condition and the women that come on had all those, everything you said. They were dismissed. They were gaslit. They were told it was anxiety. They told it was stress. And in fact, they had a material defect that was being dismissed. So it's it's so prevalent and it's so necessary that we get that word out to pursue and advocate for yourself. Look at and use your resources. The American Heart Association website has everything you, you could ask for there. There's so much information. And especially with the outreach to women who so often are dismissed. Yeah. You know, they, they speak up and they get dismissed. And the thing and, is, I see this all the time. I, I see yeah. this like every week, I will give you an example. And, you know, sometimes I post on LinkedIn. I used to do that regularly because I see it so pervasive and I don't know if it's ever going to change. You know, my daughter, her generation, maybe it'll be different, but it's, it's years of decades of socialization where they'll bring their spouse that has Alzheimer's to the thing. They'll be, oh, his appointment, this. Actually, a month ago, I had a patient. She was there with her husband again. He had dementia, and she was getting him, and he had another meeting. And then she's telling me at the visit, and she's my patient as well. She's like, you know, I've been having this weird blah, blah, blah sensation. And I told her, I'm going to take you to the ER. We wheelchaired her there, and she had a heart attack. And the next day, she went home oh, with a student. But she didn't want to tell me, but it was just, you know, it was all about him. And I'm like, he won't be getting any help if you're not around. So, okay, it's all about him, but you need to take care of yourself because who is going to take care of him when you're gone? Because a lot of these are like 80-year-olds and the, the kids are somewhere on the East Coast or somewhere not where they can be of help. And so the, the whole burden is on this woman who is in her 60s, 70s, and 80s. She's taking care of her grandkids because the daughter has issues. Like, it's just, it's all... Nobody says, no, I can't take it. They take all this burden on their shoulders and they never learn to say no, that I, I'm old. I can't take care of all this. They just, you know, you're a mom, so you can't say no to your kids. You're a wife, so you got to take care of your husband. You're a daughter, so, you know, there's a parent somewhere in a nursing home. You got to go visit. So it's just women are socialized to just get dumped on and it's okay. 
And so, yeah, they have to be more aware of how am I feeling with this? Is this something I can handle? And that's, that's a whole different talk. That's just, you can chisel at it, but it's going to take generations to kind of make that equal to what men do. Not saying they're selfish. I'm saying we need to be like men and say, hey, I can only take this. This is enough. I need my time. I need this. I feel this. Women feel a lot, but they just don't vocalize it when it comes to themselves. And we have to make sure that the message is conveyed without you, everybody's in trouble. It's the oxygen, yeah. oxygen and mask. And that's what I tell them. If this, this ship is going to sink, if the, you know, the driver of the ship is gone, like it's not going to do anything. You know? yeah, take care of yourself first because you can't help if you aren't. The whole oxygen yeah. mask thing. Put it on yourself yeah. first. <laughs> yep. Well, yeah. Yep. If somebody is around someone, you're at a restaurant, you're at an event, you're, you're out in public, and it appears that they're having some difficulty that might look like a heart attack or a stroke. First of all, what might that look like? And then secondly, what can they do? So it is really important first to, you know, ask them, are they okay? You know, they may be choking. They may have had a cardiac arrest. I think this is a very important segue to hands-only CPR, which mm -hmm. we are trying to make sure as many people know that skill because it is absolutely life-saving. Basically ask them, are you okay? And if there's not a pulse, you start hands-only CPR and you ask somebody to activate the you know, 911 and get a defibrillator if there is one or an AED if there is one close by. But hands-only CPR immediately doing that can actually improve that person's survival by at least twofold. And this is important because it's a skill that not only can increase the life, uh, saving that person's life, but most out-of-hospital arrests actually occur, not in a public situation, but at home, 70 to 80%. So you're learning the skill to actually save your loved one. And so if it's not important to save a public person, because most of these arrests actually occur at home, so it is so important to have that skill because you could actually save a family member's life. But the more people that know it, they can save somebody in a restaurant or a public place. And that's where we do have these AEDs. So, and we can activate the emergency. Most people don't have AEDs at home. So that's why, you know, call 911, but start that hands-only CPR as soon as possible. You double, almost triple the chance of survival for that loved one. And again, I'm going to push people back to the American Heart Association website because on there, they have very specific and detailed examples of what hands-only CPR looks like. And I know the old CPR, you have to do the mouth to mouth and people just didn't dig that too much. They yeah, just I think there was concern also that, you know, if it's a female that's down, you know, will they be, in a, you know, there's going to be this lawsuit, inappropriate touching or breaking a rib regardless. So most states have a good Samaritan rule that actually prevents you from, if you're trying to save, resuscitate a person, you will not get sued. So that should not be a fear. You should, if somebody's down, you need to try your best, and especially if you have those skills, use them without worrying about that. I'm so glad you brought that up too, because so many people do. They're concerned, oh, what if I do? But it, it, what if you don't? If you don't, somebody could die. If at least you yeah. took and attempted to help, exactly. you tried. Exactly. And the odds are good, it's going to be for the better. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we, we wrap up? So 
I think my main philosophy has been about empowerment and empower one person follows the potential of saving many, many lives. And the best way to empower somebody is with knowledge. So we've actually learned that heart disease is our greatest risk. We've learned what our risk factors are and that 80 plus percent of cardiovascular events are preventable. We've learned that women and men may have different symptoms, but time regardless is of the essence, whether it's a heart attack or a stroke. And we also learned how important hands-only CPR is to save a life. So I think taking that knowledge and propagating and perpetuating it is the best chance we have of reducing and maybe eliminating cardiovascular disease as our greatest health threat over the next decade. In terms of fundraising, the I, every major market, I would imagine, has a local chapter. What are some of the bigger fundraisers here for the American Heart Association? On their website, if you want to donate, there's a big button there, the mm-hmm. chapter, the Sacramento chapter. You can reach out to anybody there on the website, but it's pretty easy. And we have these fundraisers every year in the community. I don't know this year. It was in April last year, but every year we have a fundraising event. So just be on the website and it's usually in the media where you where the next event is. But on the website, there's always a button about what you can do and how you can help. Thank you so much from, from the bottom of my imperfect heart, you know, for all the information that you shared, for the significance of some simple actions that we can all take. And thank you again for so much that you do for the American Heart Association on top of an incredibly stressful and and busy job that you've got working with patients. So it's it's just an amazing amount of time that you put in to the cause of heart health. It's, it's definitely worth it. If I just see an improvement in these statistics that we seem to quote about awareness, if that changes, then mission accomplished. Dr. Sharma, thank you again. If you have any questions, visit American Heart Association website, and you can find everything we spoke about on there today. Thank you. And welcome to American Heart Month. You as well. Thank you for listening to the Nonprofit Podcast Series. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If what you heard moved you, please reach out to that organization and do what you can to help. If you like and appreciate what we're doing to support local nonprofits, please give us a positive review, subscribe, and share. If you're a nonprofit with an interest in participating in an episode, you can reach us at info at multipointstrategies.com. The Nonprofit Podcast Network is a production of Multipoint Content Strategies and is recorded and edited by Hear Me Now Studio. Thank you.